The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who, and today we're discussing the fourth Doctor story, The Stones of Blood. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Sticker. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Also, get your very own Secrets of Doctor Who t-shirt or phone case or more by visiting sqpn.com slash merch. Another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy would be the Secrets of Middle-Earth, which you can see if you're watching the video, see on my t-shirt. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Middle-Earth. So without further ado, Jimmy, could you tell us, uh, give us a recap of what happens in Stones of Blood? This week, the Fourth Doctor and Romana are on the hunt for the third segment of the Key to Time. They arrive in present-day Cornwall at the site of a stone circle known as the Nine Travelers where they meet an archaeologist and her assistant, as well as a group of pseudo-Druids who worship a Celtic goddess connected with the stones. It also turns out that some of the stones are living silicon-based life forms that feed on blood, hence the name Stones of Blood. The stones kill some of their worshippers, and it turns out that the archaeologist's assistant is really an alien. She's lived on Earth for 4,000 years, she brought the living stones here, and she's been impersonating the Celtic goddess. She's also got a ship in a parallel hyperspace dimension. The Doctor and Romana end up on the hyperspace ship, and the Doctor breaks a door seal that releases two groups of sparkling lights. The sparkling lights say that they are justice machines, and they put the Doctor on trial for breaking the seal without authorization. They convict him and try to execute him, but the Doctor grabs the alien lady, and she's shocked into unconsciousness. The Doctor then convinces the Justice Lights to access her memory to determine if her memory's okay, and they learn that she's the galactic criminal that they're after. Following this, they sentence her to internal imprisonment and turn her into a new stone in the stone circle. But before they do that, the Doctor grabs a necklace from her, and it turns out to be the third segment of the key to time. The end. All right. So, uh, overall impressions, Father Corey? Yeah, <laughs> this really is a, a great story. I mean, it it's stretched out. It's it's one of those where there's lots of running around and back and forth between locations, and it just feels kind of stretched out. There's really not a lot that goes on. I mean, a couple of times we see the glowing rock things moving through the forest, crashing through the trees and crashing through doors. And yeah, it's it's the last part is probably the best of it just because there's actually something going on but uh i just i'm not impressed actually my, my thought was this wasn't written by douglas adams but it it felt to me like somebody who was trying to channel douglas adams but didn't do it as well because there's there's obvious humor in there at least obvious to me that didn't quite land as well as douglas adams would have so i i'm was never been a fan of this one i really it's, it's one of those that okay gotta watch it if you want to watch the whole key to time series and that's it how about you, Jimmy? It's not terrible, but it's very far from being my favorite. I hadn't seen it in years and years. I haven't watched this one that much. My memory of it was that it was really boring because of this, the villains being the stones. Uh, having an inflexible stone monster as your monster of the week that has no articulation, no face, no 
teeth, no claws, no nothing. It's just a big stone slab that moves is not that uh, that interesting a villain. Um, it was more interesting than I remembered. Uh, in on watching it again, I thought so. Basically, the first two of the four parts focus on the stone circle, and the second two parts focus on the ship in hyperspace. And the first two parts were more interesting than I remembered. Um, so it, it it still isn't great, but it, it it wasn't as bad as I remembered. The second two parts I had largely forgotten about, and I it start they started off interesting. Um, at first, I thought the hyperspace ship and the Justice Lights were more interesting, but then the trial sequence, I thought, went on for too long and got tedious. So, you know, I, I on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd make this one about, I don't know, a 5 or 6. Yeah, this was a, a, a three-parter that got stretched into a four-parter, or maybe even a two-parter that got stretched into a four-parter for me. I mean, it just did, like you said, both. I think both of you said, it went on too long. Uh, the stones were comical. I mean... Raw big stone <laughs> attacking you. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, it just didn't like you. I think it's like you both said, it, it just didn't the jeopardy from big stone just didn't yeah. do it for me. I, I also wondered about Douglas Adams's involvement in this because there are some, some Adams esque touches, but mm-hmm. I didn't think that it was particularly Adams esque in the end. It wasn't as fun as he would have made it. Exactly. Yeah. I was yeah. That's actually I was something I was going to come into. Like I thought the dialogue was better than the action. Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. did. There were a couple things that made me chuckle and even maybe laugh out loud. A couple of very few moments, but the the, the doctor and I think there was a moment with Doctor and the Romana, and then another one with Doctor and K Nine, where there was a funny back and forth, mm-hmm. and I just thought those were clever, and those were the best parts, really. Yeah, yeah there was another funny moment with Romana and K Nine early on when they're on the TARDIS and the doctor makes an allusion to, uh, to, to tennis and, and, uh, and Romana turns to canine and says, canine, what is tennis? And he (laughs) says, real lawn or table. And (laughs) at at this point it is too much for her. She doesn't want this much information. And she just says, forget it. And canine says, deleting memory files on tennis. Memory is deleted. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> not what i meant the <laughs> yeah. uh, it's the interaction between the doctor and romana continues to be interesting mm-hmm. uh he does he really dislikes the even the appearance of taking orders from her or of doing what she says he he mm-hmm. wants to be in charge and doesn't like it when she's right or when she's you know when she comes up with the right thing to do at the at the moment and he'll re- it's a cliche of yeah. he'll rephrase it as his own idea and that sort of thing. Yeah, he doesn't even like taking suggestions from her, right. and he'll reframe any suggestion she makes as his own idea. Yeah, and this is the third piece of the key of time that we talked about. The six total, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the third piece just happens to be on Earth in the present day. In the UK, you know, because of course, because <laughs> it's Doctor Who, and that's where he likes Present, to go. Present-ish day, they really don't imply or really don't say exactly. I mean, you could maybe it's the surveying equipment. The yeah. surveying equipment might be the closest thing that actually shows that it would be close-ish to the seventies. Right, right. It's definitely second half of the twentieth century at some point. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, they get a warning. They start off with a warning from the White Guardian about the Black Guardian, but that doesn't really go anywhere. 
Right. Uh, it's um, just beware the black. They hear an they hear an an audible apparition that says beware the black guardian, and that gives the doctor an occasion to explain to Romana about the black guardian. They also clarify a little bit how Romana got on board the TARDIS because she believes she was commissioned to go on board by the president of the Time Lord High Council. And the doctor says that was really the white guardian in disguise. But there's also this black guardian. So he gets to explain that to the to the audience because they haven't mentioned the black guardian since part one, which if you're watching this week to week was several months ago. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to remind the audience because in the end, we're going to have some some issues with the white and the black guardian that they don't want us to forget about. They both exist. Right. And for our audience, remember that the, the the stuff that we had with the black guardian and the battling him in like that was the fifth doctor stuff we just yep. <laughs> finished. Right. So we're sort of doing this a little bit out of order ourselves. Yeah, we're a little river songy on this. But <laughs> um at this point the audience has never even seen the Black Guardian before. Right. The the the, the BBC audience or you know the the Doctor Who audience. Right. Yeah. Right. By the way, I there's a, another nice bit of comedy with Romana and the assistant who's um um Vivian, Vivian, Miss Vivian Fay, which is a trait name. It means living fairy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's definitely not normal, but she appears to be normal at first and to have been a member of a scouting group, a girl's British scouting group. And she tells Romana, I used to be a brown owl. And Romana apparently takes her completely seriously and says, really? And the doctor explains it's a scouting group. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Although kind of interesting, given that. Vivian actually does shapeshift into a, a, a raven yes. or crow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they end up at, the, you know, uh, apparently Cornwall. They don't say. No, they do at one point say Cornwall. Oh, they do. Okay. Because um, I, I was reading online and they were saying all the clues are there, the names and, and that sort of stuff uh, the, uh, indicates it's Cornwall. But this standing circle of stones that's like Stonehenge. And there's several of these throughout. Not, not the, near the as impressive. No, <laughs> there's lots yeah. of them, though. There was a major stone circle building culture in Britain and Ireland and France uh, about 4000 years ago. Right. And the doctor talks about how they were observatories mm-hmm. and sophisticated. And the course yeah. of explaining to Romana, explain to the audience. And, and this was something that was popular at the time. Uh, there was a book that came out called Stonehenge Decoded. In the 1970s, and it was extremely popular. My parents had a copy of it, and some professor had used a computer to analyze Stonehenge Ooh. and concluded it had all that the stones had all these archaeo- astronomical alignments. And subsequent scholarship has not looked as favorably on Stonehenge decoded because it turns out if you got a bunch of stones. You can line them up with the stars all kinds of ways. And <laughs> yeah. so there's there a lot of the things you hear about alignments are exaggerated. Although mm. there is a basic alignment between Stonehenge and the solstices. Um, mm. uh, but it's not the summer solstice that Stonehenge is principally about. People always think about, oh, Stonehenge, and this is aligned on the, you know, with the with the summer solstice and Druids go there and do their Druid things on um, on the summer solstice. But actually, so- Stonehenge appears to have been a monument that was not oriented towards the summer solstice, but the winter solstice. And they had a big party at Stonehenge every every winter 
Um, and so it was kind of a midwinter festival they had there. We know that because we've got the bones of the pigs that they ate and we can tell by the, um, by the age of the piglets when the piglets were born in the year. And it points to this being a winter festival rather than a summer festival. Mm. It's not nearly as you know fun when, when you're doing modern day pseudo druid stuff to party in Britain in the winter. As yeah. Least, uh, yeah, in June. <laughs> yeah, in an they, open, open facility, you don't have nice indoor heating. Yeah, I, I, I do like though that in talking about the druids, the doctor points out yes. the, the unreliability of druid knowledge and how all the modern druid ceremonies are basically all made up because we have no clue what the druids originally did, other than scattered references and like Caesar and so forth. Um, and, and so all of the modern druidic rituals are just modern inventions that don't have anything to do with what historical druids did. And, uh, and in fact, he refers to the British Institute of Druidic Studies as, uh, crackpots who aren't real druids acting out rituals, which, uh, I don't know if that's a real thing, but I would imagine that even if the, this particular name doesn't exist, I'm going to guess there's probably something similar oh, that did. like that. Oh, yeah, there there are groups like that, including ones that had some fairly high-placed British officials in them, you know, movers and shakers in British culture, who weren't really taking this Druidism seriously. They were just playing <laughs> at it. It's, it's, right. it's similar to some of the, the paganism movements you see, like here in, in North America, where they you know, Wicca and things like that. Oh, we go all the way back. No, this is this is made up. This is not right. well, come recent. There are druids who are more serious about it, but the societies I'm thinking of, like with the highly placed aristocrats, those yeah. were just for fun. That was like British Bohemian Grove. Right. Um, they're, they're, it's just a party for rich people. It's not really anything they're serious about. Cosplaying is druids. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, Celtic goddess that uh, Vivian is her identity she has assumed over the thousands of years is Kayak? Kaliak. Kaliak, right. Or Kaliach, as they say it. Right. Um, and so she's being worshipped by these pseudo-Druids uh, led by a Mr. DeVries. De DeVries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and for some no real good reason, the Stones decide to kill Mister Devries and his assistant Martha. Yeah, for, for just, there's no reasons. it's just drama. Yeah. There's no reason mm -hmm. for them to kill their own worshippers, right? Um, I do like though that um, so it, it, early on the Doctor. This is like an episode, end of episode one, beginning of episode two. The Doctor gets kidnapped by the Druids, and they timed us to a stone, and Mister Devries is going to sacrifice him. And has a knife all ready to cut his throat. And then his assistant, Lady Martha, objects. And she's got a real conscience. And and she's like, I'm not doing this. We're not killing this guy. This is crazy. And um, it's clear, based on what happens, she really cares about DeVries. She, she really likes him. But she's not willing to go along with murder. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, the... And... and uh it's this whole sequence is very interesting. Um, the because the with the doctor wakes up and is like, ask, he's tied to this rock about to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Has that knife been sterilized? Yeah, <laughs> it's one of the funny lines I, I, I was talking about. Yeah, um, she he also she also when Martha objects and says, "I'm not having anything to do with this," he says, "Good for you." <laughs> <laughs> and and meanwhile, Romana has been lured away from the standing stones, the stone circle. Uh, by the way. 
the whole impractical shoes thing, mm-hmm. which which is a fun thing to point mm-hmm. out because so often uh, women were had, had were made to wear these impractical shoes in these adventures. Yeah. Yeah. Romana is wearing stiletto high heels. Yeah, and she later changes them for high heeled. Chunky. Not not boots, yeah. but the heels are much aren't, aren't stiletto. But still, yeah, yeah. it's like I don't think this is much of an improvement in terms of practical shoes. It, uh, but she gets lured away by uh, to to this edge of a dangerous cliff by the doctor's voice, and then we never see him. Mm-hmm. You know, but somebody with the appearance of the doctor pushes her off the cliff, and I thought it was an interesting choice that they make to not have Tom Baker just you know. Someone you know, pretending to be someone pretending to be the fourth doctor. I thought it was a lazy choice because yeah. they should. If she's seeing the, the doctor and he pushes yeah. her off the cliff, we should see that. No. My suspicion as to why they didn't do that is because they didn't want the image of revered children's figure Doctor Who pushing his assistant to the death. And that's, I mean, that's what Wiki Wiki confirms that that Tom Baker objected to doing yeah. it. He's like, I'm not going to do that. And so they did just the voice and then had her do the no, no, don't do that, doctor. And then fall. Right. And later on, she, you know, when he rescues her, she's like, get away from me. Um, so, however, it does give us a literal cliffhanger because after he pushes yeah. her off the cliff, she's hanging off the cliff. She's literally hanging there. Uh, so the doctor's rescued in the stone circle by um, the elderly uh, professor. Oh, um, Emily. Amelia Rumford. Rumford. Professor Rumford. Uh, she scares them off, which is uh, she does a whole Obi-Wan sort of thing, scaring off the. <laughs> The the uh, Tuscan Raiders, the Sand People. Yeah, that was that was a kind of a funny thing. Um, I, there's a great cartoon of Luke Skywalker talking to Ben Kenobi, saying, "Ben, you cannot call them Sand People." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's that's good. Uh, she she did not seem to be so concerned to find that he's tied up for sacrifice on a rock. Like she's, you know, this, this is a terrible time to be out here at night. He's like, you know, why are you laying on this rock? He's like, he's cause he's tied to it. They're about to sacrifice him. She doesn't quite seem to get it, which is kind of funny. She's like a little bit of the absent minded professor. Yeah. She, yeah. she's a little dotty, but she's fundamentally on the side of the angels and well, she's she, a good character. Yeah, yeah. She, she thinks that she'd met the doctor before, but she couldn't remember, but it was at some seminar somewhere, and it was because of a book, because of this person, and throw out all kinds of names and dates, and the doctor's like, yeah, I don't <laughs> know any of what you're talking about right now. She, there's also a little bit of parody of the scholarly community there, because she's talking about what an idiot um, you know, a, a particular other scholar is and how she deserves his place at, at university. And, and, and at the end of the episode, she comes at the end of the story, she comes back to him and says like, Oh, I'm going to write a paper. That's going to totally demolish his career and I'll get, take yep. his place. <laughs> yeah, that, that was An- good. Another thing that this is drawn on that we pointed out before in other episodes of Dr. Who is um, 1970s British folk horror. Because we have horrific things happening in a rural British environment, and so we're drawn on folk horror again. Right. Yeah, and I mean, some pretty, I mean, off, obviously off-screen graphic stuff, but like when the Martha and DeVries are, are killed by the rocks, like the doctor says, oh, her skull has been crushed. <laughs> like, ew. Like, yeah. wow, that's pretty graphic for a kid's program. Well, yeah, yeah the- folk horror frequently was more graphic than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had the, you had the, the, the couple that was out camping, which which that's a precursor <laughs> to all the, like the uh, the Freddy Krueger movies and things like that, or not Freddy yes. Krueger, but Jason. Yeah, movies, the, Friday, Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, where they're always out camping somewhere in the middle of nowhere and then get killed gruesomely. And that I, they, they that they show 
basically that the stones suck them dry. I mean, like yeah. they suck them down to the skeleton because she right. her hand gets stuck against it, and the next scene, all you see is the fake skeleton. Hand. Yeah, I, I was going to mention them because I thought that was an effective scene. At one point, the stones go off to recharge. You know, Canine has been battling them, and he's been draining his power supply and needs time to recharge, which for Canine just means wait for it to regenerate it's not like he's got to plug into a power source um and the stones similarly have been drained by the battle with canine and so even though they're both just standing there making energy effects at each other Mm. and they go off and uh and find a a young couple uh, presumably a husband and wife who are camping and the husband comes out of their tent and it's like these two stones weren't here last night. And he calls his wife to come look at him and she touches them and screams because she can't get her hand off the stone. And then he grabs her to try to pull her off the stone and he gets stuck. And and we're given to understand that they're, the stones are now sucking their blood and we fade to red. Yeah, which is yep. very effective. Normally, you fade to white or fade to black, but we don't get too many fade to reds. Yep. <laughs> I want to go back to when the the doctor was looking for for Romana because the, uh, there was a, that was another funny scene. Was he calls on Canine to kind of help him track her down, and he says, "Canine, you've always wanted to be a bloodhound." And no, Negative I haven't. Yes, you have. Negative <laughs> master. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> I th- I did. That. I laughed at a lot of that one because that was that was very funny. I thought that was that was humorous. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, Professor Rumford is she's taken aback by Canine, but the doctor reassures her that they're. They're all the rage in Trenton, New Jersey, which is kind yeah. of funny. <laughs> she <laughs> and, notes he's uh, mechanical. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That that, and, that uh, far that far off obscure place called Trenton, New Jersey, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of America, and she also wants to go take on the the stones, the living stones, with a police truncheon that she got for her trip to New York so she could fight yeah. off muggers and herself got arrested or got detained for having a police truncheon yeah. on her as an offensive weapon. <laughs> I'm not sure that that actually would violate New York. I mean, if it was a gun, it would violate the Sullivan Law in New York. But I don't know that having a truncheon would do that. <laughs> maybe probably the equivalent of used it. <laughs> air, airline security of whatever airline security there was in the 70s, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> oh, back then you could carry knives. You could certainly carry truncheons on planes. <laughs> <laughs> Fake bombs. Just ask, you know, yeah. uh, uh, um db cooper <laughs> oh yeah. by the way talking about uh yeah well yeah well db cooper i mean he got on there's no searching you yeah. know until after db cooper yep. um but uh another funny thing i really like at one point uh professor rumsford asks the doctor are you from outer space and he says no i'm more from what you'd call inner time <laughs> right <laughs> it's like what you would call no humans talk about inner time yeah, <laughs> yeah. well th- in that same scene uh she says to him, I still don't understand hyperspace. And the doctor says, who does? Canine. I do. Oh, yeah. shut up, canine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then it turns out Rumsford actually does understand hyperspace, even though she says she doesn't. She starts articulating what it is. Yeah. yeah and we get Einstein's special theory of relativity uh, d- yeah. discussion. So the doctor gets his second concussion of the night uh, when the stones attack them in DeVry's mansion. And uh, which turns out... Um, the land that the stone circle is on has always been owned by women going back to a 12th century convent of the S- little sisters of St. Gadula. You know, I didn't look up St. Gadula. Did, did either of you? I assume they made it up. 
Yeah, yep. it must be a meetup. Um, and there's discussion of uh, Henry's, you know, uh, confiscating Dis- the monasteries. Yeah, the, we've got a good bit of British history in this one. Um, I mean, they weave in a lot of it. They do mention Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, which caused a problem for the Little Sisters of St. Whatever. Um, they also, when they're going through the mansion that was where DeVries lived, that was built on the site of the monastery, uh, they find a priest hole. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something Americans typically won't know about. But we've actually, it's not the only one in, in the fourth doctor's time. In nope. the earlier story, The Pyramids of Mars, the doctor and Sarah Jane also found a priest hole in a British manor. And what a priest hole is, is a secret passage and like room where you can put a priest because during the um during the time of Queen Elizabeth I, the bad Queen Elizabeth, um, it was illegal to be a Catholic priest mm-hmm. in Britain and you would get executed, like uh Saint Edmund Campion did, yep. for example, if they caught you. But what would happen is you had this expatriate community of British Catholics in France um who were responsible, among other things, for the Douay Reims Bible. They were in Douay and in Reims, and they would send priests back over to England covertly, pretending to be laymen, so they could um, so they could say mass in private for the people who were still yep. faithful to the Catholic understanding of the Christian of the Christian faith, and give them the sacraments and confession and everything like that in private. But because of the fact they could be raided at any moment by the government authorities, they would build hiding places for the priests. And these hiding places were known as priest holes. And then that's why you have secret passages in a lot of fiction uh, set in Britain, because I mean, why would you build a secret passage in your house? You know, that's cool. Uh, well, but, yeah. <laughs> but no, there's no real practical reason. No for real practical reason. Right. Unless you're trying to hide a priest. And so right. priest holes are the origin a lot of, of a lot of the secret passage stuff that we see in detective and horror fiction. And but and but this was the time they, they founded the English college in Rome, which is where English seminarians study while they're in Rome or live while they're in Rome. And it was established to basically make missionaries back to England mm. and knowing that they'd be, they would be um, likely martyred. martyred. Yeah. And I, I guess you like in the entrance to the English college, there's names of all the priests who went back to England who were martyred. Wow. Yeah. And oh, they man. would go back knowing they were likely to be martyred when Edmund yeah. Campion, who was a young guy, I mean, he was like in his 20s. And he he was a Jesuit, and um, one of his fellow Jesuits, as he was preparing to go on his mission to England, painted a a, a martyr's crown, a, like a wreath of mm-hmm. laurels, on the wall at the head of his bed. So he's mm-hmm. like sleeping underneath the sign of this martyr's crown. Wow, I I think we also see a priest hole in the fifth doctor story black orchid if i recall correctly i think there was there there one in that one mm-hmm. um and there's a there's a sort semi equivalent in america where we had the underground railroad moving mm-hmm. slaves out of slave states into free states mm-hmm. uh, i remember seeing in the house of seven gables in salem massachusetts they have a uh, a secret passageway up into a room in the attic where uh, escaped slaves would would uh, hide out. Mm-hmm. They would keep them while on their way. So um, it's this sort of thing people did. Yep. Um, so 
the doctor Toriadors, the if that if I could use that as a verb, mm-hmm. uh, the the stone, the living stone off the cliff as it's attacking them, which I, I thought that was uh, clever. Uh, and he calls them the Ogri, that they are a species called the Ogri, which he s- s- verbally connects to Gog, Magog, and ogres, like because well, of a similar name. He he. So he says they're the Ogri. They're from the planet Agros, which is in Tau Ceti, which he speaks of Tau Ceti as if it's a broader place than just one star system, but it's just <laughs> one star system. And he says that they like live in a swamp and feed on uh, an equivalent of globulin that is there naturally. But since they're not in their native swamp, they've got to feed on the protein, the blood protein globulin from from humans or animals. And up to now, the cult has been sacrificing animals to them mm-hmm. uh, and letting them have animal blood. But now they're going after human blood and only three. So one of the questions is, why are there why are the why is this stone circle called the nine travelers if there's more than nine stones? And it's because, well, there's an extra three that are really ogre, mm-hmm. and the doctor gives them names and says they're named Gog, Magog, and Agris. And okay. Gog and Magog are biblical names. Um, in in their in its original appearance, Gog is a, a leader, a military leader from the north of a of a people called Magog. Um, and it's a, those those are both symbolic names. Um, oh, okay. And then they get picked up again in the Book of Revelation as kind of apocalyptic figures. So that's what they're drawn on. Agris is just a name they made up, though. Okay, so that's just the doctor giving them names. I didn't get that. Well, I, he may be. He may think they're their real names, but they don't make anything out of this. They just yeah. the doctor just gives them these names, and mm-hmm. it's it, it, and they move on. But they never even use the names again because why would you? They're just big moving slabs of rock. Yeah, <laughs> right. that growl once in a while. Yeah, they yes. don't have personalities. So they. This is about the point where we move into hyperspace because uh, Vivian. I'm just going to call it Vivian because the other name's too hard for me to yeah. say. Uh, transports Romana into hyperspace uh, as a cliffhanger of the second episode, and uh, and the Doctor follows them there, trying to rescue her. And they come aboard this ship, and they they find some dead bodies in, in pretty in, in compartments in compartments, mm-hmm. and it's pretty. Actually, it's surprisingly callous. Um, yeah. They've got these rubbery alien bodies, and the doctor, like, opens a door, and one of them falls out, and he just kicks it back in. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and you okay, go. that's a little <laughs> respect for the remains of the dead. I guess. Um, I mean, 4,000 years. That's, yeah. At what point does it? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> they, he also looks in a window into one of the compartments and sees a weirin. Which was really cool, and as a as a callback to um, uh, the Ark in space. Ark in space, right? And and, and he says that gives him the clue. He turns to Romana and says, "I think this used to be a prison ship." Right, and then they open up another door uh, that has a seal on it because that's oh, and, a good idea. And the way they open it is yes. awesome because yep. the doctor, like, they're debating. Okay, so can we see anything in this one? No. Why they can't, I don't know. I mean, these justice machines are blinking lights that float around. They should see the blinking lights in there, but they don't. Mm-hmm. 
and they decide to open the seals on the door and the doctor pulls out the sonic screwdriver and uses the sonic screwdriver to smash the seals. <laughs> yep. He doesn't sonic it. He just bang and smashes the seals. <laughs> and Tom Baker has the slightest delay where you think he's about to like use it to like, sonic it and then smash. And just like yep. that, that was I thought that was humorous, too. That, yeah. Like there was a few moments in this one that were there was there was good. Like just, just a little bits of humor. Um and yeah, and that's when they let out the Megara, they're called the, who identify themselves as robotic judge, jury, and executioner. And like a lot of like AI justice machines, they've def- decided that all organic life is, is ultimately a violation, violating laws that's on a regular basis. And all punishments, almost all punishments are death, except for the one punishment that kind of matters in this episode, which yeah. is the Vivian. Uh, we, we can get to that, but um, they, we and, have and, this trial. Go ahead. And they start arguing over the doctor and they put him on trial because he smashed the seals holding them in without authorization. And even though he's got perfectly good reason, he was trying to rescue them. You know, they yeah. thought that that this there might be someone trapped in there. And so, but being bureaucratic, the and and excessively polite isn't the right word, but there's kind of a Chippendale chipmunk like you know quality of how they are polite to each other and deferential, but mm-hmm. they're they're very bureaucratic and inflexible. So they're not willing to listen to did he have a good reason for doing what he did. All that matters to them is that he broke the seal without authorization. And one of the two sparkly lights decides to be the doctor's uh, defense attorney. And the other is the judge and apparently the prosecutor, mm-hmm. um, which is a bit of a conflict of interest. Um, but as they're ar- starting to argue about the doctor, he and Romana just walk off. Yeah, <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> yes, right. A, a judge, jury and executioner. And uh and the doctor decides to use this legal president as a delaying tactic, but also and and eventually as a tactic to reveal who Vivian really is, because he figures out she was the prisoner that was being transported aboard this vessel yeah. that they were supposed to be the originally supposed to be uh, putting on trial and judging. And this doesn't really make any sense because so they say that the reason the Justice Lights didn't know who she was is because they were just the jury. They weren't the police. Mm -hmm. The police, they tell us, were apparently some of the dead bodies they found who've died over the last 4000 years. So apparently at some point the she was in transport by the police to where she was going to be judged. But they had the judges on the ship. And they never introduced them to the prisoner. And they didn't just let him judge because the judges seem happy to judge anywhere. They don't care if they're at some special location. (laughs) They'll put you on trial right now. And they didn't do that with her. Um, So it kind of doesn't make sense. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but the doctor then. So they sentenced the doctor to death in his absence. And um, and when. When they, this is in episode four. He's the doctor's been sentenced to death, and he demands an appeal, and he demands to put on his own case. So he's acting in pro per, um, and he whips out a out of his pocket a a sheepskin judicial wig 
yep. <laughs> to wear um, and and starts presenting his own case. And he's trying to out Vivian. Uh, he's trying to make her a witness and testify so he can reveal her identity to the sparkly lights. But through various legal chicanery, she's able to avoid that. Right. And, which is they, which is what forces him to ultimately grab her as he's being executed mm-hmm. so that she'll get shocked and then he can he can tell them, okay, now inspect her memory to make sure her memory is okay. And yep. that's when they learn who she is. Well and that's another thing that didn't make sense is, is why didn't the execution take? Why didn't he kill him? I assume because it was divided between him and her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's that's kind of supposed to be it just knocked them out, or at least knocked her out and knocked him to the ground. Yeah, I do like the fact that they call him on his like he's on trial for his life on one charge and he's trying to distract them with the Vivian thing. And they they call him on it and you know, attempts to influence the bench are punishable by death. Well, I mean, yeah. it's already, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, so the they so, yeah, he tricks them into reading her mind because she's unconscious at this point to find out that she's the criminal that they were there for in the first place. Um, and then um, her sentence is, you know, uh, appropriately enough, I guess, you know, uh, poetic justice to be imprisoned in a stone forever or in, as in a circle. stone forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she they actually have two charges on her. One of them is impersonating a religious figure, which <laughs> yeah. which. OK, fine. And the sentence for that is like 12,000 years or 1200 years or something mm-hmm. imprisonment. And then the other one is transporting the ogre off their home planet uh, because they're apparently dangerous creatures. And for that, she, she, the, it's perpetual imprisonment and the sentence is to run concurrently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they then turn her into a stone. Right. And then, then they're about to turn back to the doctor's case and he just waves them off and they disappear. And he's, he, they give us a kind of phony baloney last minute explanation about the doctor programmed the hyperspace ship to go back even though they're standing on Earth in our space, yeah, they just vanish. And the doctor says it's because he programmed the hyperspace ship to take them where they were going. And apparently it yanked the sparkly lights out of our world and back into hyperspace when it that happened. Sure. <laughs> and that they'll be – it'll take a couple thousand years before they get there and back to find them. So, yeah. Yeah. So, does so that mean we're uh, going to see them shortly with the 14th doctor? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> or 15th doctor. That would be interesting. Uh, the, maybe the Kaliak gets out of her stone. Um, yeah. So it turns out that the, the that Vivian was wearing the, the, the sixth stone as a pendant, the, the third stone as a pendant. And so we have the, all three stones now. And they're stories. Yeah, the segments. Yeah. And um, the th- they, they're storing them in an icebox in the, yeah. in the room off Old of the school. control room yeah. on the TARDIS. So that, I just thought that was funny. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in this that plays into the hyperspace plot of they sometimes detect the third segment as being in the stone circle and they sometimes don't. And it's because sometimes Vivian is in hyperspace and sometimes she's not. Yeah. Right, right. So uh, any final thoughts on this one, Father Corey? Well, we have to once again. Canine gets smashed, but they're able to fix him up. Right. Canine right. is, is yeah. It canine is like the transporter and the communications and the phasers on Star Trek. He's like got to break a bunch in order to keep exactly. the plot moving. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> he's, 
he's he's a little too o- overpowered for you know a lot of plot lines so they've got to get him out of there even though they need him for some and of course funny part is in real life you know in the real world the canine model was was pretty bad i mean you mm-hmm. see it with some scenes i think i think the one where where canine points and the doctor says well go i think the thing actually got stuck and that's why they did the whole i'm scanning yeah because it was it it constantly would get stuck on like even the smallest pebbles and then they'd lose signal with it and stuff and it was just it was kind of it wasn't as bad as chameleon but it was still kind of a (laughs) pesky thing and they had to rebuild it a couple of times during the series because it got so bad you know it got so bad but uh and you know, I mentioned earlier, like there were a couple of scenes I thought that they were trying to be Douglas Adams, and that the hyperspace was one of them, and then the whole trial scene was the other. Because, like, like you said at the beginning, Jimmy, that you know, if Douglas Adams had done that trial scene, that would have been so much better, so much funnier. Mm-hmm. Even that conversation with the hype about hyperspace and all that would have been so much more clever, right? If it was a Douglas Adams line, but they were trying to kind of channel Douglas Adams because I don't think he was. Script, script editor yet? Yeah, I don't. I actually, I think he was script editor this season. So actually, some of the Adams elements in this may have been his attempts to punch up the script. Could be. It could be, and that that and it, it just didn't hit as well as normally would if he had written the entire script. Yeah. So because because he was the main author of the Pirate Planet, if I right. recall correctly. Yes, Anthony Reed was the script editor on this one. So oh, no, okay, he's not on the on this one. Okay, so that's all I got. All right, and Jimmy. Um, one thing that I, th- I, I thought I'd mentioned, uh, so there's actually a name for the kind of stones that you find in stone circles. They're called sarsens and, um, and not all sarsens are in stone circles, but the ones in stone circles are typically sarsens, which are kind of a boulder made out of sandstone. Um, and they were used by the circle building culture. Um, but the name Sarsen is pretty recent. It's only a few centuries old. It goes back to the Middle Ages, and it has an interesting origin, which is why I mentioned it. It's short for Saracen. The Saracens were Muslims, and you know they were the bad guys in the Crusades. And so you had these Crusaders coming back talking about the Saracens, which got shortened to Sarsens, and um. One theory of how the how the term got attached to these stones is they were used in pre-Christian um, circles, so they were kind of pagan. And well, is, aren't the Saracens pagan? Actually, no, they're not. But um, well, they're kind of pagan, so we'll call these Saracens after the Saracens. But my own preferred theory—I don't know that this is true—is that the farmers who had their fields interrupted by these ancient big you know megaliths hated them because they're you got to mow around them they're in you got to plant around them they're inconvenient you got to divert your oxen around them they're just these damn saracen stones and so <laughs> they, they got called sarsens my favorite uh, quote on Stonehenge and like circles is uh, from the author Bill Bryson as quoted in the video game uh, Civilization 6 can you imagine trying to talk 600 people into helping you drag a 50-ton stone 18 miles across the countryside and muscle it into an upright position and then say, right, lads, another 20 like that, and then we can party. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Imagine that being read by Sean Bean in his mm-hmm. uh, Scottish accent. So, uh, all right. So that's it for, I think, for uh, Stones of Blood. We have our uh, feedback that we wanted to share. Uh, our first feedback is coming from our episode discussing the Seventh Doctor's final episode, final story, Survival. Mm-hmm. First one comes from Aro via YouTube, who says, I read this story, particularly the repeated references to survival of the fittest, as an anti-racist allegory. As you note, the sergeant who promotes this view totally falls apart on the cheetah planet, which I interpreted maybe as a comment on the prominence of far-right groups in 80s Britain and as a kind of rejection of Hobbesian ideas of war as humankind's state of nature. Indeed, the story concludes with the doctor overcoming this supposed instinct to fight like animals. I don't know that I'd interpret it as specifically anti-racist. I think you're right about the rest of it, about, you know, the Hobbesian, you know, life is nasty, brutish and short and we've and survival of the fittest ideology and all that stuff and commentary on right wing stuff in Britain in the 80s. I think all that's correct. Um, I don't know because they don't really bring race into it that much in this episode. They do in other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that I would interpret it as specifically anti-racist. Although, um, you know, the writers in Hollywood and their British equivalents aren't always the greatest moral theologians, and they tend to blur issues together mm-hmm. that are actually distinct. So yeah. who knows? Maybe that that is exactly how they intended it. <laughs> All right. And then our next one comes from Brett, who sent in an email, who writes, uh, Survival was a bittersweet episode for me to watch. I started watching Old Who with your reviews, so I've never seen it before. I've loved the Seventh Doctor stories. Maybe it's just a nostalgia for the decade before I was born, but the app that struck hard, Brett. That yeah, I know. That was, that was uncalled for. The, 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 <laughs> so you were born in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, but the atmosphere of the seventh episodes always felt fascinating. The worlds he visited always felt like they had more to them, more history, more lore, more to be explored just under the surface. The Happiness Patrol story, for example, made my imagination go crazy, wondering the whole history of what had happened leading up to this and what would happen after the Doctor left. Some of this air of mystery was obviously on purpose with the Cartmel master plan in the background. I haven't found a single Seventh Doctor story you've reviewed to be boring. Are there any Seventh Doctor audios or novels that you would recommend which would capture the same atmosphere as these two brief episodes do? Uh, there, so I haven't read a, a lot of Seventh Doctor novels, although there actually were a bunch, um, because th- since the show wasn't being produced on TV at the time, the Seventh Doctor was the Doctor in the ongoing new adventures of Doctor Who until 1996 when Paul McGann arrived. And so there are a bunch of Doctor and Ace novels. Which get in, I haven't read any of them, but I understand they get into some adult territory at times. Um, what I am more familiar with is what Big Finish has done with Sylvester McCoy as the Seventh Doctor, and there are some great ones. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorites is Live 34, which, we've which, which, yeah. which we've talked about here before mm-hmm. on the show. Live 34 is awesome. It is wonderful. I it, It's Basically, an unlo- it's kind of the inversion of what you usually see 
in Doctor Who in the seventh Doctor's time, which is the Doctor and Ace show up somewhere and dethrone a totalitarian system. And normally we see it from the Doctor and Ace's perspective. Well, Live 34, which is entirely told through newscasts, is it's on planet 30 colony 34 and we're listening to their radio effectively and it's all through radio newscasts we hear about the dethronement of their totalitarian system from the perspective of an ordinary person and we just hear the doctor and asic and hex who's another companion of the audio seventh doctor we hear them periodically in newscasts but it's all told from this corporate news perspective as their own system is crumbling and and it's it's really well done it's really interesting there are others that are also good uh one of my favorites i think it's called a life of crime is is the is mel's reunion with the doctor and ace um and and we get into some who actually is the doctor territory. I mean, is it this person or is it this person? Is this person another regeneration? Um, and and my memory is that one, which is from Melanie's point of view, post Sabalom Glitz. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very interesting. I remember that liking that a lot. There are others too. Um, there's a there's a pair of episodes that pays off the Ace's um, – the fact that Ace is a wolf of Fenris, um, as was revealed in um, – uh, I'm blanking on the name of the episode, but it's one of the well, reasons. The, the, world, the yeah. World War II episode that we talked about um, where Fenris shows up, this ancient evil foe of the Doctor who he plays chess with and reveals that Ace is one of his wolves and he was responsible for the time storm that took her to Ice World. Well, they pay that off in the future with a, a like a two-parter that's set on a giant – on a world that's basically a giant chessboard. And so you have the Doctor and Fenris rematched with Ace, Ace's fate and Hex's um, at stake, as well as other characters that have been introduced. The Curse of Fenric, that one was. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, yeah, that's and the we'll, TV version. Yeah. Yep. We'll be doing a lot more um, Seventh Doctor Big Finish, too, as yeah. we, now that the uh, TV is done. And then the next one is from Jonathan, who on Facebook Excellent review, Jimmy Dom and Father Corey. I think a nice bridge between the McCoy era and the Doctor Who TV film is the BBC computer game Destiny of the Doctors, released in 1997. It features Anthony Ainley as the master, capturing the Doctor's past incarnations, and ends with him being defeated, only to be captured by the Daleks. This is the predicament we find him in at the beginning of McGann's film. Ainley is great as the master in this game, quite amusing in a number of cutscenes, and it features original material by the fourth to seventh doctors, and he provides a link to a YouTube video that has the intro to the video hmm. game. I have never I know there are Doctor Who video games. I've never played any of them because I haven't really gotten into games because in order to be good at something, you have to be bad at it for a long time, and I don't have the time I want to invest in being bad at video games at this point in my life, I have other things I'm doing. Yep. Yeah. So I, I, I can imagine though, in 97, this was the era of the, you know, the, the cutscenes. Yeah. The CD-ROM <laughs> games. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping the gameplay is good. I'll have to go check it out, but, uh, yep. 
because I'm willing to be bad at something to become good at it. So, and it, maybe I don't get good. So be it. At least I'm bad and enjoy my time playing it. Uh, so I have to check it out because, but some of those, some of those old CD games, they can be very hit or miss. Yes. They can be pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the seeing Anthony Ainley doing his, you know, mustache twisting master could be worth it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, then on our episode on the Zygon inversion, the 12th doctor story, uh, Ted sends in an email upon listening to the latest podcast. This doesn't happen often, but I disagree with Jimmy. Jimmy mentioned something about the scene at the end of the episode when they're dealing with the boxes and he wondered why Bonnie did not change back into her Zygon shape. I think that the scene worked much better with Bonnie still showing her Clara appearance. I thought that Jenna Coleman played that scene really well. At the beginning of the scene, she appeared to be cold and heartless, but you could see her soften up to where she went along with the doctor's reasoning. I don't know that we're in actual disagreement here. Um, the My question, I, I, was, I agree this scene plays a lot better with Jenna Coleman, um, and that's why they did it. My question, but that's a that's a non-diegetic reason, meaning it's a reason that's not based on the story they've set up, but on some other consideration, like how will this play for the audience? And um, and so my question was, what's the diegetic reason here? It doesn't seem to make sense, given that they've established that Bonnie is a let it all hang out. Let me show my true Zygon self ideology person and she's not following that ideology here um so i think there's i think they don't provide us with a good diegetic reason meaning an Mm -hmm. in-story reason but i think there is a good non-diegetic reason meaning out of story reason why they play it the way they do and then he says uh, one other item i thought about and wanted to get your comment on when osgood said she would shoot the doctor and then said she would shoot him 12 times does the shoot him 12 times reflect that there are 12 incarnations of the Doctor, or am I reading too much into it? You're not. That's exactly what Osgood is referring to. She's saying, yeah. I would I would shoot you and burn through all of your incarnations. And, and as, as I say, she would probably know that he had gotten a whole new set of 12, you know, yeah. they didn't have the whole timeless child thing even yet thought at this point, you know, so she knew that she just, you know, wait till he regenerates, shoot him again, wait till he regenerates, shoot him again. And <laughs> shoot him again, repeat. says I. Yep. All right, that's all our feedback. Thank you, everyone, for your excellent feedback. We really appreciate it. We want to, right now, take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Father Eric T., Elizabeth E., Kathy L., Linda L., and Janet M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. This StarQuest show is brought to you in part by Sam Castry Law, LLC. Focusing on business and entertainment law in the greater Chicagoland area and intellectual property law across the U.S. Learn more by visiting castrelaw.com. C A S T R E E law.com. Licensed to practice in Illinois and before the United States Trademark Office. We'd also like to thank Zyman Yannick, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. What did you think of this fourth Doctor story, The Stones of Blood? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com, the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch The Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel where you can also leave a comment at youtube.com slash StarQuest Media. 
We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the first first Doctor's story, Mission to the Unknown. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And we'll be talking about the only first Doctor story not to have the first Doctor in it. <laughs> That's right. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, they're all the rage in Trenton, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs>